0: Welcome to Human Nature News podcast. This is Frank Salter, and this will be the first podcast, first interview I'm doing. Now I'm speaking out of the Sydney area, Sydney, Australia, and I grew up in Sydney. I'm a, a native-born Australian, trained uh, initially Sydney University undergraduate degree, postgraduate degrees in Brisbane. Before leaving for Europe in mid-1991, where I worked at the Max Planck Society in Germany um, for 20 years, my initial training was in hierarchy, in dominance, in command. So my first book, Emotions in Command, published in 1995, dealt with that subject. It was an observational study across many organisations of how people actually convey directives or commands to their subordinates and how the subordinates receive those. Beginning with the publication of that book, I began focusing on not just command, which has a lot of dominance involved, but also at affiliation and bonding. Very few bosses give orders just in a brutal, demanding way. Generally, there's a relationship with the subordinate They'll soften a command. They'll use appeasements uh, to use linguistic terminology. And so I thought, well, this is interesting. I, I, I'll study bonding and affiliation across societies, and this led me to study ethnicity. Ethnicity is um, bonding that occurs within a whole population, and it can lead to conflict between ethnic populations as well. So from the mid-1990s, I began... Um, studying this. And by 2002, I had my first um, edited book on, funnily enough, mafias, ethnic mafias, ethnic freedom fighters, and uh, ethnic dissidents in totalitarian regimes. The book was called Risky Transactions. Uh, And following that came other other publications in which um, I studied Ethnic diversity, so my focus became ethnic diversity. What, if any, are the effects of mixing people of different ethnicity in the one society? The fruition of that was another edited book published in 2004 called Welfare, Ethnicity and Altruism. And the finding there was that as diversity rises, conflict also goes up and welfare actually goes down. So welfare states are undermined by rising diversity. This thesis has been replicated and greatly strengthened by various research um, from then up until now. In conducting this research on emotion signaling and ethnic ties, it became obvious that biology is systematically excluded from the social sciences. The following interview with Dr Michael Woodley of many is part of an attempt to bring biology back to the study of society. This is the first of a series of interviews with experts in various social disciplines. On the program today is Dr. Michael Woodley of Menea, a behavioral ecologist who's done important work in, in human psychology, various psychological characteristics, from an evolutionary perspective, which sets him apart from a great number of, uh, of, of psychologists that have been operating, what, for the last, I suppose, 50 years. Um A bit
1: longer? Except, except, a bit longer. Yeah, oh yeah.
0: Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having um, me, Dr.
0: Salter. You're welcome. You've published important work on the intelligence of Victorians in comparison with the intelligence of modern Westerners, modern people, so people of Britain. So, the, my first question is. They didn't do IQ tests back in Victorian times. IQ tests were developed in the 20th century. Can you explain how you how you measure intelligence of Victorians?
1: It's interesting you should say that, Frank. The first IQ test was developed in 1904, so it came very close to being Victorian by virtue of the fact that uh, Queen Victoria died in 1901. But you're right. There were no what we'd consider pencil and paper or psychometric type IQ tests back in the 19th century. There's a very clever man, however, called Francis Galton, or Sir Francis Galton, actually, as he was knighted in 1909, who believed that quickness of mind was a literal truism, by which I mean, when people are described as quick, it's a colloquialism for being intelligent. He believed that that was not a trivial connection. He thought that the idea of quickness of mind could be measured in terms of quickness of reactions and that mm. the overall quickness of reactions would indicate uh, the quality of one's mind, its efficiency, the quickness with which it can solve problems. So Galton set about the Herculean labor of being able to measure reaction times using uh, very, very simple and crude, but believe it or not, really rather um, really rather high precision instruments, which were able to measure down to about a hundredth of a millisecond. And these instruments could measure how fast you responded to a visual stimulus, like a, a bit of light shining off of a mirror or the sound of a bell going off. And you would arrest a pendulum as it swung or you'd arrest a rod as it dropped, and the time between the release of the weight or the release of a pendulum and the point at which you arrested its movement would translate into a, a distance which could be used to calculate speed. Like I said, with an accuracy of about a hundred milliseconds. Now it turns out that these reaction time tests conform to Golden's expectations. They do, in fact, correlate with more conventional measures of IQ and what's more is they correlate with them uh, at the genetic level. They seem to share genes in common with each other. So we have a way of measuring mental ability although it's not a pencil and paper way of measuring it it's a physiological way of measuring it which gives us an index variable we can actually use to create a benchmark estimate of the intelligence of these historical populations.
0: Mm-hmm. Now that's an amazingly um, accurate uh, measure for the 19th century. Um, well,
1: it's it's accurate uh, in as much as uh, well, it's more precise than it is accurate. We actually know how accurate Galton's measurements were. They they weren't very accurate. Uh, there's a small sample who were retested using the same instrument, and. The correlations between the performance of the original sample and the retest sample was, were about 0.1 to 0.2. They're not not very uh, not very reliable, unfortunately. But the it's the precision of the measurement which is more significant in this instance because the reaction time apparatus that Galton used could measure something much closer to what's called the true reaction time than modern instruments can. And this is an interesting thing because a lot of modern reaction time measuring equipment uses information processors. And information processors, people have only just started to realize this, can add literally hundreds of milliseconds onto your average response time, thus inflating the apparent latency or slowness of your reaction time considerably. Golden's instruments used a simple arrangement of levers, a kind of mechanical uh, transmission system, and this allows instantaneous communication of the force of depressing a key or button to whatever mechanism is responsible for actually arresting the swing of the pendulum or stopping the weight from descending, which can give you the distance, which can give you the reaction time. So a lot of the difference between modern populations and the Victorians in terms of the apparent slowing of their reaction times actually has nothing to do at all with the uh, relative intelligence levels of the two populations. Instead, it has it has everything to do with the fact that these various um, sources of Latency, these uh, these lagging sources, these software lags, etc., hardware lags in these newfangled modern bits of equipment, artificially inflate the performance.
0: Mm -hmm. Right now, what is the correlation um, between uh, reaction speed and and IQ?
1: Varies from sample to sample and from uh, measure to measure generally more complicated measures of reaction time. So ones where you have to make choices, you have to discriminate between stimuli or conditions, Um, things like the odd man out test or or four choice reaction time. The more complex the task, the better it correlates with IQ. But the more simple tasks, they do still correlate with IQ and the correlation in an ideal sample for something like a visual reaction time, simple reaction time, that's a measure of the speed of your reaction to a visual stimulus like a light coming on or turning off or something. Uh, the correlation with IQ is typically in the 0.3 to 0.4 region, which is respectable. That means about 10 to 15 percent of the variance in IQ performance is due to differences in elementary Processing speed of the most elementary variety, literally just quickness.
0: Now, so far you've you've uh, described the, the the methodology and the theoretical basis of it, but th- but that's not what you're known for. This, this your finding about uh, Victorian intelligence has made this big splash, hasn't it? It's, it's attracted to considerable attention. Could you tell us about that core finding?
1: Yes, certainly. Well, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the difference in apparent reaction time speed, a lot of the apparent slowing that's gone on in recent decades relative to these Victorian samples is due largely to a method variance stemming from the fact that the instruments have all sorts of lags built into them, processing lags, variable four period lags, uh, button clicking lags, all sorts of things. Um, but it turns out once you've quantified those sources of lag, which you can do, and you correct the studies for these sources of lag, you still get an apparent slowing of reaction times, which amounts to about 20 to 40 milliseconds over the course of a century, based on various factors such as which studies you choose to include and the sort of corrections you make to the data, but you get somewhere in the region of 20 to 40 milliseconds. And that's not insubstantial. In terms of an IQ change, that would translate into an IQ loss of somewhere in the region of one to one and a half IQ points lost per decade. Per decade? Is a, yeah, per decade, given that this is over the course of a century. So, the reality is, yeah. You, what's left over once you've made all the corrections and cleaned the data, essentially, is still quite an appreciable slowing of reaction times. And in terms of the change in IQ that this may entail, it's it's not not trivial. It's about a point roughly, about a point point and a half a decade.
0: Now that's that's interesting. Now the have you, do you have a century long map of Victorian IQ, say from 1800 to 1900 or now you'll have it from Galton's golden's work would have been 1880 I
1: suppose well the golden work was was conducted between the 1880s and the 1890s uh, there were one or two other studies conducted around that time period was one by Thompson who's actually one of the first female psychologists in the world and she was based at the University of Chicago and she she conducted studies on students which found similar values to those reported by Galton. We're talking about reaction time speeds of on the order of 200 milliseconds or less compared to a modern uh, method variance or inflation corrected mean of around um, 220 to 230 milliseconds. So, right. so, so
0: the loss has been from, say, roughly 1880 or at least the measured loss.
1: In, our... In terms of reaction times, yeah, the, the oldest the oldest data set we have that's really any good is Goldman's, simply because right. of its size and representativeness of its sample. It's it's huge. It had thousands and thousands of participants.
0: Uh, can so... can you then can you then tell our listeners two things? One, um, the uh, the significance of a ten uh, IQ point loss over 100 years or over any period, the significance of of a loss it doesn't sound like a lot. You know, know, people who, who are not aware of IQ research might think, well, 10 points is not very much. So that's the first point. The second point is, why in heaven's name this would happen? Because most of us, I think, imagine that we just assume that people are becoming smarter and smarter each generation. We're learning more. We know more about the world. And those primitive ancestors of ours must have been dumber. So could we begin with with 10 that number 10 is it? Is that a big number?:
1: Yes, it is. And to give you some different comparison, the uh, sort of estimate I, estimated IQ loss that we have here is something like um, roughly three times the size of the IQ loss that you would predict based on the strength of selection on G, the so-called dysgenic selection. So that that is to say the negative correlation between G and general intelligence, that is, and uh, fertility. Across studies, I conducted a meta-analysis. Studies indicate that the loss is somewhere on the order of 0.3 to 0.4 points per decade. So we're dealing with a loss that's substantially bigger than that. It's Mm -hmm. three three times bigger than that, actually. Mm -hmm. So... This is really quite astonishing. And in terms of what it what it implies, if it's real, if it's not uh, due to some measurement artifact that I haven't taken into consideration. And of course, that is a possibility. Mm. But if it's substantive. and We have reason to believe it is because reaction times are not the only thing that's going into decline. There are other measures which produce actually even bigger decadal losses in IQ when scaled into ver Iq equivalent so really the reaction times are at the small end of the uh, potential G indicators that we have showing evidence of decline but assuming that it's real assuming that assuming it's real a loss of a loss of 10 points a century could hmm. very easily account for the observation that per capita rates of eminent individuals and the sort of macro innovations that they are responsible for producing. So that is to say the frequency, the prevalence of these individuals and their macro innovations as a function of uh, a weighted based on the size of the population. Those trends have been consistently negative really since the middle to late 19th century. And it seems reasonable to believe that one cause of this may and we have some we have some we have some evidence for linking these things. So it's not it's not so speculative anymore. We actually now have some uh, some evidence directly connecting the two things, but it seems reasonable. To believe that this rather precipitous decline in our capacity to produce macro or big idea innovations and our capacity to produce individuals of the sort of level of eminence of someone like Einstein and Darwin, the decline in this capacity might be directly linked to this really rather uh, large uh, decrease in general intelligence in, over the last. In
0: other in other words, the danger is that we're losing our geniuses.
1: Well, we are losing our geniuses. This is this is not even disputable. Dean Keith Simonton actually wrote an article in Nature about two years ago called "After Einstein, Genius is Extinct." Now he he explicitly distanced himself from the idea that this could be linked in some way to declining intelligence. He cites the Flynn effect as a kind of uh, a counter to that that notion. But the reality is. The Flynn effect is 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 concentrated not on the G factor of intelligence. It, it, the Flynn effect is concentrated on these test specificities, these narrow and less her- heritable and more trainable skills and competencies. Uh, when you when you actually look at things which track the underlying G, the underlying general intelligence, so things which measure the uh, speed of neural nerve conduction velocity or th- or tests which measure the efficiency of working memory like digits backwards this is another example of a test which has shown over the last 80 years a consistent pattern of decrease in terms of uh, uh, levels population levels of, of of ability in working memory mm. uh, or you use measures of cognitive ability which um which draw on multiple different aspects of ability, such as uh, the people's knowledge and ability to use knowledge of and ability to use hard to learn items of vocabulary. And items Mm. of vocabulary are are particularly good measures of intelligence. Uh, They also, funnily enough, it turns out that vocabulary measures are among the most heritable measures of intelligence, which is something paradox. You wouldn't expect that. Uh, given that it's so culturally valenced. Um, but it's true, there's a thing called the heritability paradox. The, it's, 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 it's been known for a long time that uh, that the most culturally loaded measures of cognitive ability are also the most heritable. But one of the reasons for this is because the process by which one acquires vocabulary items is itself a very good um Indicator of one's underlying mental horsepower, for want of a better term, because to mm. acquire vocabulary, you need to be able to engage with uh, literature. You need to have an interest in doing that. You need to have the ability to organize facts. You need to have the ability to commit to long-term memory um, information, and you need to be able to realize the relevance of uh, of, of certain words to solving certain uh, certain types of problem. Such as synonyms and antonyms, you need to be able to organise your your vocabulary database very efficiently in order to in order to get very uh, hard synonyms and antonyms in order to find the appropriate pairing terms, for example. So, all right, you, if I can just interrupt you there.
0: So we're just talking about the Flynn effect. You're just you're, you're, and you haven't defined that yet. The
1: Flynn effect is the incre- apparent increase in pencil and paper IQ test scores yeah. um, of around three points per decade. So two big meta analyses came out last year, uh, Pichnik and Varyshek 2015, and a second one by a group whose names I cannot remember, but it came out in psychological bulletin, showed exactly the same thing which which is to say uh, an increase of three points per decade on these various uh, pencil and paper tests. Mm. Now, the Flynn effect is interesting because um, people who believed in the 1930s that dysgenic fertility should be reducing IQ, they actually set about trying to observe it by returning to Um, cohorts from the same area who were at the same age 30 years later so they measured people in the 30s and they measured people in the 50s at the same age and in the same location and what they found was actually IQ had gone up when their models predicted that it should be going down due to directional selection Mm -hmm. now this was actually called Cattell's paradox because the uh because, of course, Cattell couldn't explain why IQ should be going up when there was apparent uh, fertility favouring those with lower ability in in, in these these regions over this period of time. And for a long time, it was actually sort of forgotten. Um, Nobody really paid it much heed. It, it It wasn't something that people were particularly interested in. Until the 1980s, when James Flynn showed that the effect was really very general. You could get it in multiple different countries and you you got it over multiple spans of years in the U.S., for example. There were two papers published in the 1980s, one in 84 and one in 87, both of which I believe were published in Psychological Bulletin in which he showed just how enormous the effect was and how general it was in terms of the numbers of countries in which the effect had been observed. And it's because of this that Murray and Hernstein in the bell curve actually named the effect after him. They named it the Flynn effect, which is what we have called it ever since, really in honor of the fact that he brought he brought this effect to uh, everyone's attention. But one of the reasons I've gotten a little bit of trouble, Frank, is because my own work seems to suggest that there is a nexus or a constellation of cognitive ability measures which defy the Flynn effect. I mentioned earlier vocabulary words um, and also uh, working memory measures. And we talked, we talked earlier about reaction times. What these things all have in common is that they show patterns, long term patterns. We're talking the better part of a century for each of these trends towards decreasing rather than increasing levels of performance in the population. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of discovered a, an anti Flynn effect, if you will. And I'm able to predict the sort of variables that are going to actually uh, give rise to this or reveal this anti-Flynn effect when you study their secular trend characteristics. And so far, we've got about six or seven distinct variables which show the same trend as the one that I observed in 2013 with, the, uh, with respect to the reaction time data.
0: So just, so just, to, just to clarify, you're making a distinction Between uh, more heritable uh, measures of intelligence, such as reaction speed and vocabulary loading and vocabulary and and less based on learning.
1: I think I think the better distinction to make would be uh, based on the degree to which the indicator reliably and consistently measures the uh, uh, basic general intelligence parameter over time. Because this is something that many pencil and paper IQ tests are actually really bad at doing, even things like the Ravens tests, which are alleged to be highly G-loaded, although recent work by Gilles Gignac seems to suggest that that's simply not the case, but we've suspected that all along. But a lot of people, including Art Jensen argued fervently that things like the ravens were the most culture fair the most these are fluid intelligence tests that basically have you solve a kind of wallpaper like mosaic pattern with a missing space and you have to fill in the missing space with the matching pattern from a range of and everybody says these are so culture fair and these are so wonderful and and and, and they should be very highly heritable and they should be highly g-loaded turns out that's not the case um A lot of these pencil and paper tests, including especially the Ravens, actually, show massive IQ gains. The Ravens is particularly susceptible to whatever it is that causes the Flynn effect. Because Uh the gains on the Ravens are are something like uh, seven points a decade instead of three. So with the Ravens, you have this sort of super accelerated Flynn effect.
0: It makes them really history. Uh, his, over historical time, almost useless as it a way of, comp-
1: way of comparing populations uh, on everything except for whatever it is for Flynn effect, co- whatever it is causes for Flynn effect. Those secular trends are certainly a proxy for something, They're a proxy for some change in in something or other, um, which uh, has led to a uh, an increase in in some very specific criterion of performance on that test. But what they certainly don't allow you to do is make comparisons between contemporary and historical populations on G, for example. It is simply not the case that the population of South Korea, for example, today is 30 IQ points more intelligent than it was in 1980. Because the Flynn effect on the Ravens is something like 30 points in in 30 years in, in, in South Korea. It's absolutely astonishing.
0: Right. So, so, your, so your work relies on, the, on, on uh, measures that are uh, less subject to the, to the Flynn
1: effect. That's right. And the Flynn effect really a lot. One of the ways the Flynn effect seems to manifest itself at the level of tests is by actually mutating those tests in such a way which makes them measure some other parameter. So, for example, whatever it is for Flynn effect measures, to, whatever it is a Raven's test measures today is actually not the same parameter as that which it measured in, uh, in, say, 1980. I'm mean, sure there, there are individual differences today. There were individual differences in performance back then. Um, but there's clearly some, there's clearly something which has changed between now and then. In terms of how these populations approach taking the test in terms of some specific sort of, Abstract heuristics that they picked up from education that allow them to sort of game the test, essentially, you know, familiarity with the use of rules and solving tests, um, which they can generalize abstractly into solving the Ravens. You know, some 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 performance criterion has changed now. Not everybody is is equally uh you know, not everybody is equally, uh, um, uh, has, is equally capable of assimilating those heuristics, which is why you still get individual differences. Hmm. Uh, so you still have variation today. You have variation historically. It's just even the worst performers today perform perform about a- average for people historically on a test like the Ravens. Uh, mm-hmm. So everybody's been leveled up, but, um, but it hasn't gotten rid of the gaps. It hasn't closed the, the performance gaps between individuals. There's still individual variation. There's still individual differences. So what I... I look, I'll just before you
0: go on, um, the Flynn effect is being used by uh, some um, psychologists and commentators to poo-poo the whole notion of individual differences, the whole notion of the reality of... Of significant um, uh, performance differences between people of, of different intelligence. The argument goes something like, "Well, uh, if the Flynn effect can 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 result in three or seven IQ point gain per decade, then a low IQ population could be a high IQ population within fifty years." Um, um, so, th- so it's a very important topic to get this Flynn effect. Um, correct. I just wanted to put that on the on the table for our listeners.
1: Yes, it's 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 an effect which it's the idea that the Flynn effect is a uh, a sort of panacea for the existence of say socioeconomic group differences or or uh, um, black white performance differences um, has been floated by lots of people uh, like uh, Nisbet for example who says that the Um, the Flynn effect could eliminate group differences between blacks and whites, for example. Uh, But the problem with this argument is that the source of the differences between, say, socioeconomic groups or between racial groups in terms of what what makes these groups have different averages of IQ is not the same as the source of variance on which the Flynn effect seems to operate. So if you look at, say, socioeconomic group differences, differences between high earning people and low earning people. The differences between those groups are biggest when the indicator used to measure those differences is the most G loaded, i.e. the indicator measures the underlying G factor to the greatest extent. But with the Flynn effect, it's the opposite. The gains due to the Flynn effect seem to actually be suppressed by highly, by highly uh, by the G saturation of ability measures, It's ability measures which are which have the least G saturation, which are the least well correlated with G that give rise to the biggest Flynn effect. So it seems that uh, whatever is giving rise to group and individual differences in IQ within a cohort is different from whatever gives rise to group and individual differences between a cohort, which suggests different causations.
0: Right, which brings us back to reaction times.
1: Exactly, because with reaction times, we have a source of differences between populations. In this instance, populations which are historical populations versus contemporaneous populations, where the difference is probably more akin to the difference between, say, socioeconomic groups in modern populations Mm -hmm. than it is to whatever it is that causes the Flynn effect. And... What I've done is is my whole model is based on the idea that that, um, this selection effect, this uh, tendency for high-ability people to produce relatively fewer numbers of children than people of low cognitive ability, the strength of that negative correlation between ability and fertility is actually biggest when the subtest in question loads on G to the highest extent. Uh-huh. So this suggests that if we want to look for sort of an anti-Flynn effect that may be driven by microevolutionary trends within populations, what people like Richard Lynn would call dysgenic fertility for intelligence, then we really want to focus our attention on highly not only not only tests which are highly G loaded, but better yet. Forget about G loading for a minute. How about tests which just reliably measure G consistently over time? Because that's something that is really fundamental to the Flynn effect. As I mentioned earlier, the Flynn effect is characterized by by um, tests measuring different parameters. They, they, They lack a property called measurement invariance. They measure one thing at time A. They come to measure something completely different at time B. When you're comparing populations on measures that are sensitive to the Flynn effect, you're comparing apples with oranges, essentially, as far as as far as psychometrics is concerned. Mm-hmm. But when you look at, say, something like reaction times or backwards digit span or uh, measures of, of very, very difficult to learn vocabulary uh, sampled from across uh, textual corpuses, or even things like um, three-dimensional rotational ability or the ability to discriminate fine gradations of hue um, among different colors, which, which sounds a bit odd. But actually, it's very highly, highly G-loaded measure, a psychophysical measure, um, another elementary cognitive task. You take those things, they all show the expected decline, consistent with a decrease in the underlying the G factor, underlying performance at the individual differences level. And that's because they can they seem to be able to measure the same parameter across time. They don't vary. And that parameter they measure is G. And if G is going down, they're going to track that in a way which a pencil and paper test simply cannot.
0: Right. Right. This is fascinating. Uh, fascinating uh, finding that, that you, you've made. I'm wondering, the audience will be wondering, so what are the implications for us uh, individually uh, in Western societies and Western societies as a whole? Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, I think that the biggest, the biggest, should we say the most important aspect of this finding is, is in terms of how this adds a lot of depth to our understanding of these social trends in factors like innovation and genius. Because I mentioned Simonton earlier and his paper in Nature, where he Mm -hmm. instantly dismisses the idea that IQ could have been declining and that this may be responsible for the extinction of genius in modern populations, um, with reference to the Flynn effect. This situation is somewhat like the situation in cosmology as it pertains to dark matter. If you look, for example, at the rotational dynamics of galaxies, you see that galaxies actually hold together as they rotate. They don't. The, 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 the uh, stellar matter located at the peripheries doesn't simply fly off. And the whole galaxy rotates in synchronicity it, it doesn't move at different rates, which is what you'd expect based on the actual the distribution and the amount of mass in the galaxy. So this is how we know that there's an invisible source of gravitation there that's giving galaxies this rigidity. This is what we call dark matter. Dark matter explains not just the rotational dynamics of galaxies, but also the distribution of matter in the observable universe. But nobody's observed dark matter. We can only infer its presence based on these anomalies that we the cosmologists have noticed. So basically, the situation is somewhat similar. The Simonton paradox, for want of a better term, the idea that uh, genius is now extinct. Innovation rates have sort of ground to historical lows. The uh, we seem to be entering into a sort of dark age as far as these big ideas and breakthroughs are concerned. Uh, yet IQ is increasing, according to the Flynn effect, yet populations are growing, yet people are becoming more educated, yet knowledge is becoming more democratized and easier to access through the Internet. Despite all these things, our creativity as a population. Our capacity to generate novelty seems to have decreased, suggests a dark matter like phenomenon at work. And that's what I like to think I have uncovered here with these with this observation of this sort of anti-Flynn effect cluster, this, the, this constellation of variables that I and people who are working within the, uh, uh, within the constraints of, of my theoretical program. It's not just me. There are other people publishing findings. Um, Peachnig and Gitler put out the paper recently on, uh, on decreasing, um, decreasing uh, 3D rotational ability. Uh, and interpreted it in line with my uh, g declining model. So, as I say, I seem to have inspired other researchers here. But together, we're putting together quite a powerful bit of evidence for a for something that's that's so far evaded the attentions of psychometricians and people who study secular trends, and that is. Something that looks an awful lot like a real substantive decline in population general intelligence, which could very easily be latent in these uh, societal trends towards decreasing output of major innovations.
0: It's as if we're down a mine; the canary has died, but we can't smell the gas yet.
1: That's right. And, and I've, I've re- built a little Why detail.
0: is the canary? Why are the canaries dying?
1: Yes. Exactly. It's, it's, it's like, a, yeah, it's like an invisible gas. It's it's omnipervasive and it's having an enormous effect, but it's something that cannot be observed. Um, it's very difficult to something that can't. Well, it can be observed. It can be observed based by its effects and also directly. Um, but pre- people didn't have the theoretical framework at their disposal to uh, infer the existence of these um, anti Flyn effects on these these sort of consistent measures of G, these measures which are consistently measuring the same underlying parameters across time, whether it's processing speed, working memory or long term memory in the case of uh, vocabulary items. Um, You know, it's 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 simply that people did not have the theoretical tools at their disposal to be able to split the phenomenological atom of these effects. And this is quite critical because we we were kind of led down a dark alley um, by uh, thinking in the mid 90s, which originated with Richard Lynn. And I'm not accusing him of doing anything nefarious I'm simply saying that he his solution to Cattell's paradox, the that is to say the existence on the one hand of negative correlations between IQ and fertility and the apparent increase in IQ over time was to simply say that, well, What's happening is nutrition and education, mostly nutrition in, Flint, in Lynn's case, um, is boosting IQ. It's improving the quality of the phenotypes. And what this is doing is it's masking the underlying genetic deterioration. It's, un- it's masking the underlying uh, genetic changes that you predict based on selection. So he called the, uh, John, um, uh, yeah, John Lowellin, it's very a uh, very eminent psychologist, Um, he coined the phrase rising tides lift leaky boats. So this idea Mm. that the rising tide is like the Flynn effect um, and the leaky boats are the uh, basically the dysgenic effects. And the Flynn effects are much bigger than the dysgenic effects. As we mentioned earlier, the dysgenic effect is estimated to shave off something like a third of an IQ point per decade. The Flynn effect is uh, 10 times bigger than that. Yes,
0: yes. So, that's a, a nice metaphor. Now, listen, we, Michael, we are coming to the end of our, of this session. You've raised a number of issues that should be taken up in future, future sessions. Um, if we could just pause here or stop here, actually. Certainly. I'd like to thank you very much, Dr. Michael Woodley of many, many, uh, for a fascinating talk. Um, we, I, I can see this going on and on for hours uh, it's a <laughs> fascinating set of set of topics in the future I would like to be discussing some of these um, theoretical developments to which you refer um, um, affecting uh, human cognition and genes and environment and so on this is the basis uh, this is a basis for for understanding um, uh, intelligence in, in populations over time but it. But if we can just take a take a halt now, thank you very much for your participation, and um, let's continue another
1: time. I'd love to. Thank you very much, Frank.
0: All the best. Thank you very much.
1: Take care.